You are listening to Season 2, Episode 1. Hello and welcome to What Leaders Know. It's the podcast for people on leadership journeys. I'm your host, Penny Beeston. Thank you for joining me for today's episode. Show notes and resources from this episode are available on my website, whatleadersknow.com. This episode of What Leaders Know will be of interest to people looking to lead in the education sector. David Robertson is today's guest. Since 2010, David has held the role of Executive Director of Independent Schools Queensland, having joined the organisation as Director of Operations in 2003. ISQ is the peak body for independent schools in this state. Prior to joining ISQ, David held Director and Deputy Director roles in the Association of Independent Schools of Victoria. We'll explore David's pathway to leadership of peak bodies in the independent schools sector in our conversation today. I love that it includes a surprising three-year stint as Executive Director of the Australian Softball Federation. Welcome, David. Uh, Thanks, Penny. It's great to be involved. David, I ask an opening question of each of my guests, and in Season 2 of What Leaders Know, I'm interested in learning about the impact of leadership on leaders. Great leadership calls on many personal traits, such as self-awareness, emotional intelligence, adaptability, and the list goes on. Thinking back over your lengthy career in leadership, can I ask you to reflect on how leadership has changed you? I think I've been extraordinarily privileged to have the roles that I've had over many, many years, you know, a real privilege. But if I think about how leadership changed me, the one that most resonates with me is it it actually makes you be a good person. You know, I have a very strong view that individually, collectively, 99% of people want to make a contribution, see the world to be a better place, you know, support whatever aims or goals that they have. And in the leadership position, that's one of the roles of leaders to galvanise those people into the direction that will achieve what they're looking to achieve, to facilitate them, to keep them on the right track. But I also think it very much applies to yourself as a leader. So as leaders, you get to make all sorts of decisions every day, some of them minor, some of them very, very big. And I'd like to think my leadership roles have, have embedded in me to make good decisions based on good values, good ethics, treating others like uh, you would want yourself treated, not asking others to do things that you wouldn't do yourself. And I suppose in summary, it's about being yourself. I think as a leader, you've got to believe in yourself. You've got to have that degree of self-belief. I think one of the other very practical things that I've learned is to be patient. Um, so we live in a fast-paced world. Yes, we have these goals and some people will want to go at 100 miles an hour. Perhaps that's not always the right way. Patience is a great virtue, I think, in the modern world. And that includes, um, you know, working with government, working with stakeholders, working with staff. Sometimes um, we overanalyze things. We jump in without really thinking about what the longer term is. It's always important to have some very, very clear goals which you can articulate to your staff, to your stakeholders, be very strategic and particularly in my roles where I work with government mostly is always look for win-win situations. So my leadership style is very much about uh, not compromise so much, but trying to get win-win situations. I'm not a divisive leader. I don't believe that division is a good leadership um, (laughs) trait and I'm not sure that it gets uh, the desired outcome. So I think they're very strong lessons that I've learned from roles in leadership positions. 
Your early capacity to lead saw you wear the mantle of school captain at Kedron State High in the 70s. How did oh my you... goodness, that is so long ago. <laughs> <laughs> How did you feel about stepping into leadership in that final year of your education? Um, yeah, look, that's a really interesting question because I don't think as a 16 or 17-year-old there was any aspiration for that position in those days it was picked by the principal or the senior teachers and there was no democracy about it, I don't <laughs> think. So I'm not sure it was something that I would have said, oh, I want to be the school captain. Clearly, though, I must have been exhibiting some leadership traits or capabilities uh, to the teachers at that school. I was probably seen as a good organiser. We were doing a charity day at school or something. I'd be in there organising all sorts of things. And I think leadership is a lot about getting uh, everyone together and keeping them on the same pathway and putting the building blocks in place. I probably did show early traits around leadership. What were your career aspirations when you reached your final year of high school? I think as a young person, you probably have some vague things. I was really passionate about the social sciences at high school and did very, very academically well in those. That was a very unusual pathway for a male in the 1970s because if you were academically inclined, you obviously went to the maths and science, but I love geography, history, economics, all of those sorts of things. So I followed that passion and credit to the teachers who facilitated that. I also had a real passion for public service, which I get the opportunity to do some of that, perhaps not meeting my total aspirations. But look, I was brought up, we were taught to you know, earn our keep. We work all sorts of part-time jobs throughout our later years of school and through university. So I always wanted to work. That's what I always wanted to do, uh, to work. But my passion was the social sciences, so that's why I chose out of any course I could have done at the university. I, I chose economics, and I do wonder sometimes <laughs> why I particularly chose that when I could have done medicine or something else. But, yeah, I'm not sorry that I did. That was my passion. You say there that you really wanted to work. Was it about becoming more independent? What was that driver? Yeah, look, I think it did relate to very much, again, our family upbringing. We were taught to be very, very independent, to look after ourselves, pay our own way. I came from a very working class family, so resources and money were always fairly tight. But it was also about that worth, that satisfaction, that contribution. My mother in particular did an extraordinary amount of charity work and I think that all sort of flowed on to us as children. It was about that contribution, you know, some very clear aims and aspirations and being able to fulfil those. So your aspiration yeah. to, to serve saw you joining the Queensland Public Service, build substantial skills in the policy and planning unit, a small yeah. team that provided advice to the Minister for Transport Mm. What were some of the key career insights you gained from this decade of your early career? My great passion to, to serve the public, I have to say the early years of it was um, nowhere near that aspiration. It was my first full-time job. It was wonderful people to work with. Um, look, over time, I think a couple of the things that I got exposed to in the positions I held, one was politics and the power of politics and the role of politics in, in our society. That was fascinating stuff, and again, it resonated with me. I saw not only good use of political power, but I saw extraordinarily poor use of political power, which actually did shape some of my later views, and one of the reasons I probably did move on from the public service, because I saw 
people would be familiar with the Fitzgerald Inquiry. That was the period that I was at the end of my public service uh, career and I didn't like a lot of the way that our leaders were using their political power in uh, that context. Um, but, you know, the influence of government and how government does impact on people individually and collectively, how government decisions can impact on people. I was uh, involved with the introduction of random breath testing in Queensland, which you know, is almost a given these days. But boy, that was a controversial issue and had a massive impact. So it's that sort of reform the better good. They were fascinating things out of the public service. Yes, I have all those memories. It was, it was an extraordinary time, wasn't it? Mm. And I suppose it, in a negative sense about leadership, it does make you cautious about leadership roles and how people use their leadership roles. And as I say, for someone like me, perhaps naive, who sees good in everyone <laughs> and believes that everyone can make a contribution, sometimes that is a comeback to reality, isn't it, when you actually see how some people who get into leadership roles um, actually use uh, their positions. You move from the Department of Transport to Executive Director of the Australian Softball Federation. That's <laughs> quite a career pivot. It was. You do um, interesting things when you're young. and um, <laughs> It was an opportunity. I, I had a very, very strong involvement in sport across a whole range of sports right from my high school days, and I have to give credit to a exchange teacher from the United States, actually. His name was Ken Moncrief, who introduced us to a whole range of different sports, gridiron and golf and baseball and so forth. It was fantastic. So I had a very strong involvement in sport. But look, it was an opportunity, and I also am a great believer you should take opportunities. It was an opportunity to, to be paid, in inverted commas. It wasn't much, I can tell you, <laughs> um, for something that you loved doing. It was a really fascinating time because this was when Australia was just entering into professional sports administration. And yes, the bigger sports had always had some full-time staff, but I think it was after the Toronto Olympics where Australia didn't win any gold medals that the Australian government started professionalising sports. So government was putting full-time administrators into a lot of sports and softball was one of the first caps of the rank. It was an interesting time to see again an opportunity to lead an organisation which was totally based on amateur, voluntary, passionate people about a sport. It's a real challenge, people who would question why you've been paid. It was pretty hard going. We were out on the smell of an oily rag and perhaps in another era I might have still been working in that field. Being a sports person yourself throughout your schooling years, you would have seen the value of sport. Oh, absolutely. You know, sport is just such an integral part of the Australian culture, isn't it? But I saw, again, going into an amateur sport run by volunteers, terribly passionate about their particular sport, and I'm sure this is across all sports. But I did see the power of a leadership role to, again, galvanise that passion keeping everyone on the same track, whereas in any organisation, people will go off in all sorts of directions, put their energies into areas where it doesn't make a difference, but they think they're doing a wonderful job, etc. So it was a unique opportunity to see the role of a leader, uh, how they can build an organisation, because in my three years, I helped build the systems and strengthen the organisation to be able to deliver uh, better outcomes for the participants and the stakeholders. That's really drawing on those skills, oh, being yes. able to see the building yeah. blocks, put them and, together. And I still love doing a list <laughs> things to do, priorities. <laughs> After all those years, I still do them every day. That's uh, part of being a leader, I think, to be able to see the scene and to be able to prioritise, to be able to cut down a chunk of things to be done into little parts that coordinate together. 
So after three years with the Australian Softball Federation, you decided to grow your leadership and for a decade you were in a number of roles with the Association of Independent Schools of Victoria. That's another pivot. Yes. I have to say, Penny, um, when I took a job at the Association of Independent Schools of Victoria, which was actually a job about program management for the technical, it was about administering the capital grants and I just found my home in that organisation, I have to say. It was really interesting because I don't have an education background. I'm like everyone, I went to school, but I don't have any qualifications in education, nor did I know anything about independent schools. I just found that organisation, what it did, how it worked, and in fact, the whole education schooling was just, it was just fantastic environment to work in. And you know, what better thing could you do to help and support um, our schools to mature and develop our young people who are our future. It was just a fantastic environment. It was certainly um, another career change. But again, in those leadership positions, I'm also a great believer that a good leader can lead virtually any organisation. Mm. Principles of leadership are, are applicable across all sorts of metrics and organisations. And very true that leadership characteristics apply right across any organisations. But of course, what makes you the really ultimate success as a leader is having a passion for what you actually do. I found in that schooling area something that really resonated with me to be able to contribute to schooling in not in a direct way, although I see a lot of good things and a lot of wonderful students, but it's about serving that common good and it's about serving and supporting, which is the roles I've played for the last 30 years. You have been the executive director of ISQ now for a decade, which will give you enormous insights into key changes that you've observed in the demands of educational leadership. Um, yeah, look, Patty, can I firstly say I have just extraordinary regard for our educational leaders, and I'm, sh and I'm sure this is across all schooling sectors, but obviously I work uh, with our independent school leaders. They do it phenomenal job under extraordinary pressure and and I know Penny you've been there yourself <laughs> in, in a previous career so you know the sort of work that they do and look it's not an easy job and it's not getting any easier I don't think that's that's a real mm -hmm. challenge I think and you know you've alluded to change is, is you know, there's only one constant in the world and that's change so, so, you know, I can talk about technology, social media, regulation, compliance, all of those big changes in education. And one of the really interesting things that when I talk to a lot of educational leaders, they will often say they don't do a lot of leading of education. They lead organisations. So, yeah, some principals are telling me 90% of their time is spent not actually on educational issues, but it's about organisational issues, compliance, regulation, dealing with parents, fundraising, making grant applications, filling out forms. I think that's a real challenge for education and I suspect that is probably happening across a lot of other service type sectors where we've taken our leaders away from the basic thing that they're good at and qualified at. So I think that's a real challenge. David, looking through your high-level lens, what are the looming changes you see on the horizon for education? I often reflect schools were set up in Australia in the 1830s, I think were the first ones, probably the 1850s when it started to really happen. And yes, there's been all sorts of change, but fundamental basics of schooling hasn't changed in the 1850s. It's still about a teacher in front of a group of students. And I often think about what institutions in our society haven't changed. Parliament is one. 
Parliament hasn't changed one iota. Banks used to be that way up until about 10 years ago. Banks now, you're lucky to find them. Also, universities, I think, are going through significant change where uh, university people tell me they're no longer building lecture theatres, for example, but more students are attending university campuses than ever, but they just don't go to lectures. They can get that all online. So I think whilst we've had this um, really rapid change, I am a great believer that we haven't seen the end of it in schooling in particular. And I think the COVID year that we've had this year and the sort of uh, rapid move to online learning for parts of the school year, I think will be a real catalyst. So it'll be really interesting to see. And I think we'll need really good leaders to lead our schools through this next period of change. I think development of leadership in an educational context is really important. But sadly, we're getting feedback from people saying, well, why would I be a school principal? It's a pretty tough job. It's 24-7. You're not going to be a millionaire, probably. I think there is a challenge there. I think one of the things that is a real challenge to leaders, and I personally think this is a good thing, one of the big changes in education has been transparency. And again, I think this probably applies broader across society. Uh, transparency, parental demands, and social media are really three big things that are happening right now. So, Penny, when you and I went to school, teachers said something to our parents. Our parents would drum that into us. These days, uh, that's all changed. Parents will question, students will mm. question teachers. So that's a real challenge. And, of course, social media itself. I, I was speaking to a principal who had a seven-year break and came back to do a, a short-term appointment just recently. And I said, what's you know been the biggest change in those seven years in the social media? So I do think we have some real work to do around building leadership capability in our schools, but I think we have an extraordinary base to do that from. One of the things that's resonated with me in schooling is the absolute ethical basis of our school leaders. Because I work with government, I can tell you 100% of the time, our school leaders want to pick the right pathway where everything is right. And that really is fantastic to think that these are the people that guide and, and lead our future generations. That really gives me great heart. So if you see the impact on the principal in the schools that, that you've been associated with, you know, the independent school sector, from where you sit, what do you think might be part of the solution to that? Yes, so I think um, a couple of things would immediately come to mind. I think we have to embrace technology. We can't fight technology. I, I always use the taxi industry as an example. Taxi industry, highly regulated by government, as is schooling quite comfortable, virtually a, a duopoly. Um, look what happened to them overnight with, with Uber. I call it the Uber moment, and I've always said schools, perhaps, when is our Uber moment coming? So I think you've got to embrace technology. You've got to embrace innovation. I think one of the characteristics of educational leaders, and perhaps, again, this would apply across a lot of other sectors, uh, they tend to be people who have built a career, have been perhaps doing the fundamentals of education for 20 years, 30 years before they get to that leadership role. So at that age group, probably a little bit more resistance to change, probably not so embracing of technology. I think that's a real challenge, which I think raises that issue in education where traditionally going back many years, leaders were in their positions for many, many years. You know, it wasn't uncommon to have school principals who had been principal for 20, 25 years. 
I think in the modern world, leaders will move around more. And I say leadership skills are generic, so I do think there is the opportunity mm. for leaders to move around. And that gives the opportunity to learn, uh, to experience different things. And I know in my own organisation, we often talk about people who leave us to go and work somewhere else in another industry, in private sector, et cetera, and then come back. You know, that's probably a good thing. So, you know, I think there's opportunities like that in the educational leadership area. Go and work in industry. Um, industry are often, you know, saying um, schooling's not producing the graduates we want. Well, go and work in industry to understand what their needs are. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I think there's some of the things, but I think the key is we have to embrace change and we have to embrace technology and use it for the good of, of our students. I think about technology and the impact on almost fast-tracking us towards that inevitable change mm. that we'll see in this sector. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, against that, we know the youngsters, you know, schooling is more about the academia, it's about social skills and community and all the rest of it. So, you know, there's always going to be a place for physical schools. You know, I think one of the trends in education is more individualised learning. Again, if you talk about trends, one trend that's probably forgotten is our retention rates in schooling, if you look over a 50-year period, uh, that's been one of the massive changes in schooling, our retention rates. So these days, vast majority of students do the 13 years of schooling. Going back, you weren't academically inclined, they're not going to go to university, you went out and got a job or a trade. Um, our schools have handled that really well. So you know, they've given all sorts of pathways for students in vocational education and other other pathways. But it's also a challenge, isn't it, because we are talking about a very diverse group of students but what is happening and good school leaders are are promoting this is we're looking at the individual um you know in america i think it was under president bush they had that initiative no child left behind i think there'd be mixed views about the uh, outcomes from that but the sentiment is really what schooling should be about isn't it focus on every child and again penny from your own experience working in, in a special school uh, that's even more important where everyone does want to do the best thing and give every child, no matter what their background, the best possible chance. You know, we've got some way to go, but I must say in my career, from a period when children who had disabilities were not able to attend you know, state schools yeah. or public schools, inclusion in our society can only happen when it's happening in our education settings, when children can attend school with their peers their needs are able to be met and their pathways will lead them to a purposeful life. Absolutely. And in the independent sector in Queensland, our fastest growing group of schools at the moment are what we call special assistance schools, mm. which are for disengaged kids. And we know up to nearly 35 or, or so of those schools. The, the leaders in school, it isn't just about education, it's about looking after the whole person. They are uh, seven days a week mm. jobs and I think one of the challenges for leaders in, in those situations is burnout. We do see quite a lot of turnover because they are difficult jobs. And relating back to leadership, I would always say a mark of a really good leader is that the organisation that you're leading will, will thrive without you uh, once you've got it. And I think we should always reflect upon that. And my staff here will always say, you know, that I always say, the world will go on, you know. <laughs> but I think that is one really important leadership trait that you build an organisation, you lead an organisation that actually will prosper, survive once you've moved on. And I think that is 
particularly uh, the case in schooling, I think any good leader will instill the systems and the people and lead those people to make that organisation viable and prosperous well into the future, well and truly after they've passed on. David, I want to shift into another lane. You have a very strong message for all of us and particularly those charged with leadership around the importance of looking after our health and well-being. Mm. And I'm interested, was there a particular moment in your own leadership journey that triggered this passion you have for increased health? Yes, health and well-being, again, of our principles in the schooling sector is really a you know, top of the agenda topic at the moment, particularly after the year we've had in 2020, but it was happening prior to that. And I can tell my own personal journey. Sometimes as leaders, we get so overtaken by the tasks that we do that we don't look after ourselves. And, and I actually found myself in that position. I often say, I live to work <laughs> and you spend a lot of hours outside of office hours as your mind is always going, thinking, analysing, planning, plotting. And you tend to be vulnerable to be trapped into that. And so for someone who had a you know, passion for sport and for other things, I did become a bit trapped where my whole existence was based around my job and as a result I did come quite overweight and um, quite unfit which given my personal background going back many years I did come to a point I do have to do something and you know that's been four or five years now and I now am a great walker I do lots of walking I use that walking time to listen to podcasts and extend my learnings in other areas I'm particularly interested in American politics which is fascinating at the moment (laughs) of course it gets my blood pressure up in some way it's in a different way and it does also give you a reflection on, quite frankly, how lucky we are in Australia mm. and how sometimes how we don't appreciate that. Although I do worry about the fact that you know, Australia tends to be 10 years behind America in trends and I do hope we don't perhaps go down the road of the division that's in that country at the moment. But I think for people who are on their leadership journeys, sometimes we tend to overanalyze. I think we make things more complex than perhaps they need to be. And I think the other message around, again, that well-being and health is don't get bogged down. Often we do get so enmeshed in some issue or some particular thing. You know, sometimes it's good just to step aside, have some time out for yourself. It is important to give yourself that space to reflect and think. For people on that leadership journey, it's something that I don't think you can ignore. One of the things I often tell my senior staff please tap me on the shoulder. And I think that is important to have that confidence in your staff. So I know leaders will have mentors and coaches and so forth. That's good. But you also need someone, I think, just to tell you that maybe, you know, take a break for a minute. I think that's a good thing. Well, I'm interested in rounding out our conversation today by asking you, COVID has changed business as usual. What three takeaways would you share with listeners on leadership journeys as we enter a second year of business not as usual? Yes, well, there's many uh, learnings out of this year, isn't there? And Mm -hmm. and probably more to come. There's probably three things that would stick out in my mind from a leadership point of view. First is be prepared for anything. You know, for someone who's been in leadership positions for so long, I often say, I've seen it all before. This is coming around again. (laughs) Uh, but I can tell you this year, I've seen some things. A good leader's prepared for anything. And one of the roles of leadership is to think ahead and to anticipate these you know, situations that arise, to do the risk management, and et cetera. But something like this year has even uh, taken me out of my comfort zone. 
as a leader, be prepared for anything in, in these uncertain times. I think the other clear message is you've got to stick to what your overall mission and objectives are, despite all of this that's happening around you. Um, there's a tendency to go off in other directions, but you know it's really important to keep those core values and your core objectives always in the background. You, know, you might be taking a different pathway because of COVID and the disruptions of this cause, but if you're true to your organisation, you always keep on coming back to what are we trying to achieve here? Um, what's our bread and butter? In our case, it's servicing a support COVID. Internally, it was, was an energising thing in that way because, you know, this is what we are good at, servicing, supporting, advocating for schools. And this year's proven to be a year when that has been just so paramount and dominant. Look, I think the third thing, and I think this is, again, would apply across many, many organisations. Ultimately, this year has, has reminded us that organisations are about people and schools in particular have found that. The appreciation of teachers has taken an extraordinary leap this year and, and sadly the teaching profession has been the subject of lots of public debate over many, many years. But I think parents discovered a newfound appreciation about the role of teachers and what they do. I saw some survey data just recently which said, oh, a lot of parents were very happy with the online learning and workforce, but maybe you know, some of it should continue. And I said to the people, said, who the heck did you survey? <laughs> <laughs> like, and you must have done it in the first two weeks of online learning because after about two weeks, I think parents were saying, oh, my goodness, can you please take my kids back? As a result of this, I've called it the year of the teacher, but it is it is a reminder that organisations, no matter what we do, no matter what field we work in, it is all about human beings, actually, and it's about those human relationships, and they were really, really came to the forefront this year. You know, I think, again, good leaders are about getting the best out of people, developing the systems where those human relationships and the different diverse skills and values and opinions of people can all be drawn together towards a common goal. So I think that's really a very, very clear message we should never forget. We can have systems, we can have IT, we can have dollars. And relating at school sense, I say to school boards, you know, most of your time is generally looking at financial reports and financial ratios, alliance reports. But this year it's proven that the value of schools is about the people. Uh, so our most valuable resource is our teaching staff. And, you know, as a board, as governors, do we give enough time and attention to developing them and looking after them? As a past teacher and a current board member, it has been the year of the teacher and they have stepped up and the demands on teachers across this year have been phenomenal. And again, in a leadership context, you know, I've seen school leaders who are sceptical and all the online learning and all the disruption move. And, you know, I've seen school leaders who have embraced it. And organisationally, our difference is really stark. Again, it's a good message about leadership into the future, no matter what organisation, what field you're in. One of the prime things will be to embrace change. And generally, as human beings, I think in a complex, changing world, so much evidenced by what's happened this year, one of the really strong characteristics of leadership into the future will be that ability to embrace change and to shape change for the good of society and your particular organisation and its goals. David, that's a wonderful way to round out our conversation today. I want to thank you for your generosity in sharing insights into leadership 
From your own very unique leadership journey, you've shared insights into leading in the education sector, one of our most vital and prominent sectors, and one that each and every one of us engages in across our formative years. Your insights into health and wellness is also very timely when people everywhere are coming to terms with the impact of COVID on our daily lives. And this is really important for those people charged with the responsibility of leading others. Thank you so much for your time today, David. Oh, thanks, Penny. It's been a pleasure. So thanks for joining me for today's episode of What Leaders Know. You can access show notes from today's episode and you'll be able to tap into resources on my website, whatleadersknow.com. I look forward to your company in episode two of What Leaders Know next week, when we'll explore another successful leader's journey to leadership. Until then, please stay safe 